David Darling. He is going to be playing at the concert that uh, is going to come right after our conference. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to a little bit and tell you a little bit about David. Uh, known as the Maverick Cellist is the phrase he's most assigned, a Grammy Award-winning artist. Uh, David La- uh, Darling hardly catches the rich. It, it hardly catches the richness and diversity, breadth and sense of the humor of a man who literally redefines the way the cello is played and the way that music is taught. His prolific collection of recordings and innovative performance style represent an electric variety of musical genres. His playful and unconventional teaching methods have helped open the world of music and improvisation to thousands of individuals. Um, and throughout the years, he's collaborated with a wide variety of international artists, including musicians like Paul Winter, Glenn Velez, and Bobby McFerrin, writers such as Coleman Barks, Joseph Campbell, and Terry Tempest Williams. He is a classically trained cellist, and he served as an orchestra conductor and faculty cellist at the Western Kentucky University. And it's been uh, so much of history David, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure yeah. to be here. Yeah, David. I just wanted to, um, first of all, you often work with um, Dave, uh, sorry, um, Coleman Barks, and you will be working with him at this conference uh, while he recites his wonderful poetry. Could you tell me a little bit more about uh, your experience with this material as well? Well, many of us are just uh, very inspired by the fact that Rumi is so present in the society we live in. And many years ago, I met Coleman through some mutual friends. And as Rumi uh, said that uh, many times in his writings, uh, the poetry should always be accompanied by movement and dance and uh, music. So I was delighted that years ago, uh, especially after the Bill Moyers introduction of uh, Coleman, that he started inviting me to be part of his entourage in touring and accompanying his spontaneous reading of Rumi and also some of his own poetry. We all know that he's one of the great translators of Rumi, one of the most inspired people I know. He has this unbelievable quality of this southern gentleman with this draw, which is very slow and yet, yet very charming, and yet, of course, he's a brilliant, he's a, he's a genius of a human being and such a humanist. And it's, it's just a wonderful, it's been a wonderful um, event for me to have that as part of my life after, life after all of these years of playing in all kinds of different kinds of bands, from jazz to folk to classical. Well, I mean, you have uh, quite a, a long history here. You used to uh, be part of Paul Wil- Winter cons- Consortium, was it? Paul Winter Consort, yeah. Sorry, Consort. And it's uh, been a while, and then you went on your own. So um, as music, uh, you've traveled the world. What kind, and just working with Coleman and so on, I just want to continue that a little bit more. Uh, just tell me a little bit more about uh, what the, confer- the conference concert is going to be like. Well, you know, the, the charming thing for me as a musician and one who loves many styles is that Coleman also likes many styles. So, for instance, we, we have not uh, just uh, uh, used uh, instruments that belong to that genre at that mm-hmm. time. Okay. He's very much in love, for instance, of playing. There's one piece I do with blues like this. That flavor, you know, <laughs> it, it puts room in a whole different ballgame. Same thing with uh, the use of Bach. You know, on one piece, I play this part of Bach. And so we have that flavor. We have Bach. We have blues. Sometimes uh, be, uh, he, he, Coleman loves rhythm, so I'll play more an African groove like this. 
Sometimes we get the audience to be with us. You know, it's a charming thing to hear these beautiful stanzas mm-hmm. coming from rooming. They just normally they they kill an audience. They kill us yeah. on stage. Uh, you know, and sometimes we've done the same same stanzas for years, and yet every time I hear them, I'm I'm so inspired by uh, the presence that Rumi has in the world. Like he, he's you know like a Mozart. You know, the things that he created with words are just beyond belief. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy that so many people in the world really know about it. You know, yes. I don't know how many of the younger, younger generation know right. about it, but there certainly is more people that know about Rumi than ever before in the lifetime of this planet. Well, this is where we are now. Um, and I think that bringing forth much of this music, I think it does uh, work to impact your soul. It does actually motivate you, and, and a lot of times it inspires people to act differently and, in, of course, as I was speaking before, universally, uh, to make an impact in society in a much better way, which music and literature do. So one of the other things I wanted to just talk a little bit more about your uh, background. You have Music for People Nonprofit Educational Network. You talk, you founded, uh, and you're very much into teaching. Well, you know, I felt uh, uh, growing up in the state of Indiana that my music education was so beautiful. And for a while, I thought I would just be a music teacher, and I was, in fact. I always felt that children deserved the best in music uh, instruction and someone who was very positive about their participation, especially in the early years with classical music, because I felt I received so much from classical music. When I j- began to love jazz and learn ethnic music and to be uh, a supporter of Hindustani music and learn to do that on the cello, I wanted to have an organization that that provided an atmosphere or an environment where people could come and express themselves freely through free improvisation. And so I founded this company called Music for People, and people... Anybody wanting to find that is musicforpeople.org. It's on the web. And we, we have this wonderful, these wonderful seminars here in the East Coast, and now I teach all over the world. We have it in Switzerland as well. But people are coming together to celebrate life through their own music making. And you do, you do not have to be trained to take the workshop. And if you're a burned-out musician, you don't know why you're in music, this is the kind of workshop that we create where there's a humorous environment, an energetic environment, and we've had quite a lot of success with it without even trying. There's just lots of us are born as musicians. I really believe every child is a musician. The only reason a child won't follow that is because somehow they're their teachers or some misgivings that they're given, they're, they're taught something or they're slapped or whatever, they're told mm-hmm. something negative. And it goes, ch- children are so sensitive. So if you give any negative, negativity to a child very early on, it just shuts them down maybe for a lifetime. So in my organization, we have people coming. Sometimes they're, they're in their 50s or second profession, and they come, they see, we advertise that if you want to do music for the first time in your life and be in a positive environment where everything's going to be standing ovation for you, this is a seminar where you can really get some help with that. And, and I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. This is very real because, you know, I'm a very... Uh, my philosophy is the first kind of sound in life is called breath. When we go like this, we we know philosophically that's the most perfect musical phrase. And some people say, well, I'm tone deaf. I can't take music. And, we, and I ask them, you can hear the siren going up and down when the fire engine is coming, can't you? And they say, sure. And I say, well, then you can't be tone deaf. There's some psychological... Uh, barrier that's happened in some individuals that all you have to do is get them to relax Mm -hmm. into their own beauty and to reclaim their child. You know, I'm a Taoist by profession in a way, and the Taoists say return to child. You know, so we, our methodology is actually called return to child. And then Mm -hmm. this idea of recapturing that innocent energy, you know, one, one of the mantras we use is, of course, the laughing mantra. That's the first one. When you, when you feel negativity or hear negativity, 
we all must be able to go. <laughs> and then right away you go to the second mantra, which is the, the, the sense of inhaling your breath in an ecstatic way, like this. <gasps> wow. You know, that thing that you, we see so much in a child playing. You know, they're, they're in that ecstatic place. So our, our seminars are full of that kind of energy. And so I'm just so happy that it's been around now for quite a long time. And thank you for letting me share that. That's yeah. great. Well, I mean, you're talking about music as a healing process. And actually, you actually also teach at the Open Center in our music uh, uh, section here. And you have courses like improvisation as a tool for healing. Exactly. So talking a little bit in that respect and why people love to take a course like that, if you could. Well, you know, first of all, the first, first instrument of mankind is the voice. So we, we, we are creating an environment where everybody is finding their natural voice. You know, for instance, if I just play this sound, First of all, get in tune with their own sound. Mm-hmm. So if they're following the typical Hindustani music, which, by the way, we need to learn learn a lot from ancient music, especially especially Hindustani music, because it's thousands and thousands of years old. They have no chord changes, oh. you know. And so in modern music, which I love, there's it's very complex in a way compared to the drone music that's involved with every. Every song that's in, or every raga that's in uh, Hindustani music, it gives a person a chance to take that breath and find out where they live with their own voice with a drone. And then for them to have enough courage, if they never have done that before, to go, hey, I did it, I did it, wow, wow. And then to follow their intuitive nature. Uh, and every sound you make, you get a standing ovation. Because doing it is more important than not doing it. You are a true teacher. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite beautiful. You got me going in there. <laughs> Good. Well, you, you need to, you come and join us for one of our sessions. It's really a lovely thing. And the, let me just say, the Open Center has been doing such great work for such a long time. I'm a good friend of Walter Beebe who founded it for many years, and I'm I'm just uh, so glad it exists. It's doing a lot of good in the world. We're trying there. We're trying. (laughs) So how's about some of those CDs? Tell me some of your CDs right now. Well, the latest one won the Grammy two years ago called A Prayer for Compassion, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm so happy that it was given that recognition because, first of all, I'm a great believer in people telling the truth. And so when Howard Zinn wrote... A People's History of the United States, you know, it changed my life because I always knew something was wrong with the United States, but I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and nobody, all the history books are always lying. Uh-huh. They never tell the truth. And then here comes Howard Zinn, who really told the truth. And he changed my life. And actually, two weeks after he died, I was at the Grammy Awards and won that award. And I got up and I had a chance to thank Howard. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful to hear the ovation from the crowd because everybody in the, in, in, uh, Artistic, creative people all knew how much uh, beloved uh, Howard Zinn was, and also I dedicated that that album to uh, to Amy Goodman in Democracy Now. Because we we're in a time that people have to tell the truth. We need truth, yeah, and we need no racial prejudice. We need to really calm down and support every human being and have one of the great education systems in the world. You know, it's just a, it's a very amazing time we're living in. So. That, that prayer for compassion has a lot of my belief in it uh, about uh, serving the poor and uh, and relaxing into something that's so beautiful. Like my mother happened to pass during the time I did that at 94. She had a good life. So the producer and I, both our mothers passed during that time because it took 10 years to do a CD. I'm very slow, but, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I try very diligently to get what I want. So we have a piece called Remembering Our Mothers, which, you know, when we decided to do that, we decided to do this kind of music. 
As soon as you put a waltz in anything, you know, a lot of people already think it's a great thing. Also, you know, when we teach music, we know that a descending bass line is one of the great avenues to improvise over. <laughs> Oh my. <laughs> but you know, part of the reason people feel good when they hear a, a groove like that is because it's waltz. Mm. You know, when you're doing, when we're doing our training, one of the first things we do to get people more comfortable is for them to discover what grooves they really know. Mm-hmm. Because when you, when you actually actualize the groove, you know, if you're a funk guy, if that's who you are, mm-hmm. well, that's all you need to do is you follow that bliss, mm-hmm. as Joseph Campbell would say, mm-hmm. until it really juvenates your own sense of your dialogue with your own music. Ah, beautiful. Are you going to play one more piece for us? Sure. for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. That was David Darling, and he will definitely be at the concert on November 5th. It'll be at 7.30 at Columbia University. And please call the Open Center at 212-219-2527, extension 2 or extension 0, uh, or also go to www.opencenter.org slash Ibn Arabi, I-B-N-A-R-A-B-I, and please uh, look up, and you'll really uh, will not regret coming to this event. Now, uh, Nick, are you still on the line? Nick? I am. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to uh, just go back a little bit before we have uh, Salman Ahmad come online, and just go over a little bit more about your thoughts about Ibn Arabi and his importance to and his teachings to the world. I know that the majority of his work has not been translated uh, into several languages, especially English. And I think it's only like 16 uh, works, and each one is probably quite large. But if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I think as Michael and uh, Nargis both refer to, the value of of, uh, Ibn Arabi, as I've uh, discovered personally, is his ability to uh, speak to you, uh, to speak to each person at the level at which they're, they're receptive to hear what he has to say. And I think what is so uh, remarkable about Ibn Arabi's uh, teaching is that it is really, in, in Western parlance, you could say it's a, a truly elevated non-dual teaching. But that's a sort of a, a more of, a, of an Eastern paradigm. In, in the Sufi, uh, in, the, in the Sufi worldview, it, it's more to do with the oneness of being, uh, the oneness of, of all things. And the way Ibn Arabi 
talks about oneness mm-hmm. is he talks about uh, uh, this uh, transformation that can take place within the heart of each human, which is to do with the opening of uh, the heart in such a way that it can encompass and carry all of the beliefs and all of the forms and all of the images of the world. So it's a, it's a paradigm that really, really strives for a true kind of diversity where all the diverse beliefs that we are encountered with and that we encounter in ourselves uh, are tra- traced back to the one, and the one is the source of all things. And so in this model, the, uh, the opened heart is the one that is capable of witnessing the real being in every belief and in every manifestation. So I think, uh, 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 you know, uh, one of Ibn Arabi's titles uh, was The Greatest Teacher, yes. and another one of his titles was the Muhyiddin, um, which means the, the revivifier of religion, which is to do with bringing alive again, re-enlivening religion. And, and I think this points to the uh, the sort of the inner dimension of uh, what we understand by religion as, as something that is full of meaning and full of embodiment and full of experiential reality that we are uh, living in, in, in our daily lives. It's not something that is uh, transcendent and separate, but it is, it is something that we discover uh, uh, within the teaching for, for ourselves. Mm. So I think that's a, that's a big part of what uh, I I kind of take away from the uh, from the teaching of Ibn Arabi. Well, one of the things I wanted you also uh, speak about is also that because it's such work that's really living, um, there's a variety of things that are connected to Ibn Arabi that are going on around the world. For example, uh, Bashara. If you could explain a little bit about Bashara, which people may not know anything about. Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, the Bashara school. Um, is a uh, is a school where Ibn Arabi uh, is studied in depth, uh, and so actually, in fact, is Rumi and Hafiz and Nifari and Lao Tzu and the Bhagavad Gita, a number of the great works um, of the of the, uh, uh, the the deepest traditions uh, uh, of history are studied, mm-hmm. and they are. Uh, although Ibn Arabi, in some ways, provides a a context or a foundation for the study of these great works because of his, uh, uh, as Michael referred to earlier, uh, quite rigorous uh, application um, of, uh, of, of actually exposing and, and formulating all of these teachings in theological, uh, psychological, spiritual, and, and, and philosophical languages. He, he was a real master at that, and uh, was able to to uh, to really articulate these things extremely well. So a deep, in-depth study of Ibn Arabi is uh, is is done at the school, and that forms a foundation for then moving into uh, uh, Rumi and and uh, and the other great teachings that uh, that we come across, including those of Meister Eckhart and some of the great Christian mystics, the Jewish mystics. Oh. So it's a very comprehensive education. Wow. Um, I mean, one of the things I, I, I read somewhere about Ibn Arabi was that he made available teachings on a multitude of subjects, starting metaphysical teachings to cosmology, morology, the science or the study of dreams, which is where he actually received some of the information that he wrote about that would come to, to him in his dreams, Sufi practice, mystical um, states, and also... He speaks a lot about the Abrahamic figures, which uh, not everybody would be aware of. And he, of course, will write maybe about the Virgin Mary, um, Abraham, Job. Um, and it serves to connect him. And he had an opinion, not an opinion, but he had information, I think, through his transmissions. Um, could you, you know, enlighten us a little yes. bit more about that? Yes, this is a, this is a fascinating area. Uh, Ibn Arabi was uh, quite a visionary, as you just said, mm-hmm. and in many of his works he discusses uh, visions and dreams that he has uh, of, uh, of various uh, people. <clears throat> um, for example, there's, uh, there are a couple of key visions that happened to him in his early life, uh, one of which is uh, of Jesus, Moses, and Muhammad. 
uh, and there's a subsequent vision that takes place with uh, with all of the prophets. And uh, he, um, this type of transmission, he uh, talks about as a direct kind of transmission. Um, for those who are familiar with the work of Henri Henri Corbin, uh, the imaginal uh, realm, this uh, kind of intermediate realm between the uh, the transcendent divine and the and the and the material world that we inhabit, uh, is 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 a, is a is a is a is a world which straddles both worlds on either end and connects them. So the spiritual and the material are are brought together in this imaginal realm, and one of the one of the features of this realm is that uh, it is it is the place where these dreams and these visions happen. So it's not uh, uh, the way he understands this. Of course, is not uh, that these are uh, sort of fantasies or, or <coughs> imaginings of some sort, uh, you mm-hmm. know, as a result of just you know random brain activity. <laughs> he, he's he's thinking more in terms of this is actually a part of the 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 the, the, the structure of being. This is how things are. Mm. These, these don't happen outside of the realm of, uh, of 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 the of the self-disclosure of the one being. So these are these are transmissions that take place in a very direct way, and uh, he goes into enormous detail in in some respects in his works, uh, talking about how this transmission works and from whom he received uh, uh, certain teachings. Well, that's um, that's great because one of the things I also wanted to say was. Um, just as a primer, let's say, and, and just if you're starting to read about Ibn Arabi, there are books that are, are there's a variety of books on all levels, but uh, some of the things that I was introduced to was uh, Sufis by, of Andalusia by R.W.J. Austin. Uh, also his book, uh, uh, which we actually have used in the reading group that was, that is Ibn Arabi, The Bezels of Wisdom. Um, where he goes into describing a lot of um, these great Abrahamic figures. And also another book that I particularly like, uh, the Hadiths, which are like the Psalms of the Bible. Um, ah, yes, the right. collection of the, uh, of the sayings of, of the prophets. Right. And yes. yes. And Some of those works that you mentioned, I, I think, are great primers on yes. uh, Ibn Arabi. <clears throat> Sufis of Andalusia, of course, is the very rich autobiog- autobiographical details that he gives, mm-hmm. uh, including um, <clears throat> all of the teachers that he met mm-hmm. and the women teachers that uh, were being discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are mentioned um, uh, in that in that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the other work that uh, that uh, is often uh, a good uh, starting point is Stephen Hurtenstein's book yes. called The Unlimited Mercifier. Yes which gives a very good introduction to the life of Ibn Arabi and to his core teachings. Yes. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the Bezels of Wisdom, uh, the Fusus al-Hikam, is one of <coughs> Ibn Arabi's best-known works, uh, fairly short but very deep, in which he explains uh, almost uh, in, you know, in that short work his entire metaphysical uh, teaching uh, and spiritual teaching comes through that work through the lives of, uh, of 27 prophets who, <clears throat> from Adam to Muhammad, uh, form a, a cycle of, uh, of, of revelation and of, well, uh, of, of the giving of wisdom over, over, over time through evolution. So I'm going to leave you for a moment because I'm going to say this is WBAI 99.5 FM and this is the Open Center Show. And we are speaking today about Ibn Arabi and Rumi, Teachings for the Modern World a conference that's coming up on November 4 and 5 at Columbia University. And if you'd like to find out more about it, call 212-219-2527, extension 0 or extension 2. Just know that listeners at WBAI, if you call or if you go online, put in the code WBAI and you will receive a lower price on your entrance fee. Um, So stay on the line for a bit, Nick. Uh, we're going to go to our next presenter, which is Salman Ahmad. Salman? Hi. Nice to be on your show. Hi, Salman. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I just got in from uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah. You were out there. You're, you're a world traveler. Um, <laughs> just so we're here and we're talking about the conference that's coming up and... 
Uh, you are going to be part of the concert on Saturday night, and you will be coming in to perform uh, uh, guitar pieces. And could you tell us a little bit about where you're going to perform that night? Well, you know, Melana, um, Mevlana, Jalaluddin Rumi is like the rock star of Sufi poets. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, over since the 13th century, uh, poets, singers, musicians, writers, dancers, begged, borrowed, and been inspired by the work and the spirit of Rumi. So I thought that um, the music that my band, my rock band, Janoon, has done, uh, has taken a lot of influence from Rumi's um, core message of unity, uh, of diversity, pluralism, and to some of the poems that we've, that we've taken are inspired by Rumi, others by South Asian Sufi poets like um, Baba Bulisha, um, uh, Lal Shahbaz Kalandar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that night will be a celebration of the spirit of Rumi. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I want to just tell you a little bit more about Salman. Uh, he was born in Pakistan, raised in New York, and Lahore is. He's a musician who founded South Asia's most popular rock band, Janoon, in the 1990s. He's also a physician a U.N. Goodwill Ambassador, a professor at Queen's College, and a co-founder of the Salman and Samina Global Wellness Initiative, focused on interfaith and cross-cultural dialogue, global health, and music education. Um, so tell us about more of, um, I know you call, there's a term, you call yourself a Sufi rock star and Sufi rock group. Uh, the two generally don't meet, so... <laughs> Tell me more about that. Well, first of all, you know, I, I never sort of said, you know, the, this Janoon's music is Sufi rock. That's something when we got, when we toured India, mm-hmm. you know, and as you know, the history between India and Pakistan has not been about whirling no. <laughs> and dancing <laughs> and music. Yeah. Uh, it's more been about sort of, you know, uh, conflict and war. So when Janoon toured um, in 1998, for the first time we went toward India, uh, our song Fayoni, which means soulmate, mm-hmm. it's a Sufi metaphor. That became, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, we number one on MTV. It sold over like a, a few million albums, and the, the journal, journalists there came up with this Sufi rock thing. So now you say, what is the connection between Sufi and rock? Well, there is actually, strangely so. Mm-hmm. One of my earliest mem- memories of music in Pakistan was when I was six years old at a family wedding. And, you know, family weddings used to take place in backyards, not in five-star hotels. And the tradition in our family always was to have Kavali Sufi singers come to the wedding and, and bless the wedding, you know? Mm-hmm. And so w- when I was six years old, there was a melody, uh, uh, you know, that, touched my heart. I didn't know what the words meant. I didn't know what the melody was about or even what the beat was. But it, it was a Tarana melody written by uh, the great Sufi Renaissance man, Amir Khusro, in the 13th century. He was a contemporary of Rumi's, mm-hmm. um, 1253, 1325. So, and it went like this. Um, um, tum, ta-na-na-na-na, ta na Om tum ta na 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 ta na 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 re dara di dara di dara dara re. You know, so that repetitious mm-hmm. chant, mm-hmm. it just, you know, musical vibrations, they do something to us which science doesn't explain. And it just connected with me in a huge way. And I later found out that those uh, Tarana syllables, mm-hmm. Om tum ta na na, uh-huh. They are uh, uh, they're nonsensical, but when many many people chant with the kavals, the Sufi singers, it creates a state of fana, which is mystical ecstasy. Ah. And then you, you know, last night I was in D.C. and uh, somebody was mentioning that you know when the Beatles used na 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 at the end of Hey Jude, uh, did that come from Kavali as well? You know. Wow. Um, so so rock and roll. And Kavali, Sufi music, one thing in common it does have is that it wants to destroy the wall between the performer and the audience. Mm-hmm. It wants to create a circle of light. 
Great. I think in that sense, uh, definitely rock music and Kavali go together. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Um, now, you also have other work that you do, um, and you talk a little bit about that uh, in reference to the UN and goodwill in Pakistan. Give me... Yes, absolutely. Um, so, uh, I've been a UN goodwill ambassador for the UN, and my... Uh, you know, Rumi embodied peace. Rumi's poetry uh, is about love. It's uh, pluralistic. Uh, it's a completely different perspective on Islam. So I found, you know, especially after 9-11, that just playing the music wasn't enough. You have to act- actively speak what is the true Islam and, and what is the Sufi Islam. So uh, my areas of interest are definitely South Asia, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been bedeviled by conflict since uh, you know the last 60 years, uh, and and more so in these times where uh, where you have um, both neighbors nuclear uh, nuclear armed. Yeah. Uh, my message has been that we need cultural fusion, not nuclear fusion. Uh, between India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I, through the music, uh, I, that's my focus. Also, because I grew up both uh, in New York and in Lahore, uh, I want to create a cultural, help to create cultural understanding and a cultural bridge through our nonprofit organization, mm-hmm. SSDWI, that's Salman Samina Global Wellness Initiative. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, now, you also uh, will move in in a variety of different ways here because uh, being rock star, we're talking, what, stadiums of uh, 3,000 people? <laughs> and you're uh, singing with major stars and uh, people can go to your website, which is salmanamat.com, yes? No, it's actually the band's uh, uh, Janoon. website. Janoon, uh, the band's, the Janoon means uh, uncompromising passion, or in, in Arabic, it means madness. Um, when, when Eric Clapton wrote Leila, mm-hmm. right, it yeah. came from that folk tale, the Arabic folk tale of Leila and Majnu. Mm-hmm. And Majnu is the crazy one, which the root uh, word is Janoon, mm. to be crazy. Oh. Um, so you can go to Janoon.com, and we have a, our 20th anniversary coming up on Rumi's birthday, Friday. September 30th, 2011, and well, this is a collection of 20 songs, which covers Sufi thought as well, mm-hmm. and it's going to be released on iTunes and all the digital musical sites uh, uh, on Friday. Yeah. I wanted to uh, also spell Janun out in case uh, somebody wants to look it up. It's J-U-N as in Nancy, O-O-N as in Nancy again, dot com. So uh, definitely. Now... You basically are working towards um, better understanding. I know you wrote a book uh, called Jihad, Rock and Roll Jihad. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, so in this world we live in, um, you know, words are contaminated, especially a word like jihad. Because when I, you know, gave the book uh, title to Simon and Schuster, they said, you know, are you sure you want to use that word on the title? It might scare a lot of people. And I said, well, you know. We're allowing extremist militants to hijack language, hijack culture, hijack faith. Mm-hmm. Because those um, hijackers who flew those planes into the buildings on 9-11 weren't acting on behalf of Islam. They were al-Qaeda. They, they didn't represent Islam or the all-Muslim culture. And I think that over the last 10 years, that conversation has been hijacked by extremists. So the word jihad, uh, very simply means struggle. Mm. And, and its most basic level, uh, it's, it's a struggle to overcome your ego. On another level, it's a, str- it's a struggle to be economically secure. Mm-hmm. On another level, it's, uh, uh, it's a struggle to be uh, socially secure. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a positive striving to lift society up, to lift yourself up, not the, the word that conjures up violence and extremism mm-hmm. the the prophet muhammad said the the lesser jihad the lesser jihad is only when directly you feel that your faith is is targeted it's a defensive armed struggle only in in those very sort of 
uh, uh, clearly outlined uh, uh, terms can you defend yourself, but you cannot t- take the life of innocent civilians. Uh, you can't commit suicide. So, so I feel that not enough, uh, uh, not enough emphasis has uh, been on the right uh, uh, wording so we, I, of jihad. So I, I'd use the title so that we could help decontaminate the word. Okay. No, that's pretty clear. And uh, yes, because uh, we always wondered. And um, in in general, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you're going to be teaching also? Because you're going to be teaching in the conference. Yeah, well, I've been teaching at Queen's College for the last four years. And my, uh, uh, my course covers uh, music and poetry and lit- literature from Muslim culture. Mm-hmm. And it spans, you know... Uh, it, it, it covers really uh, cult, uh, contemporary and traditional uh, sources. So from uh, Jalaluddin Rumi to the 20th century Sufi singer Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan um, to, uh, to rock bands who cover, uh, or hip-hop bands, for example, Outlandish, who are Danish hip-hop band but are inspired by Sufi poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I cover... Uh, film music from India, uh, like for example, A.R. Rahman, who's also a Sufi composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this conference, what I'm going to try to show, uh, it's, it's titled Rumi in Spirit. And what I'll try to highlight is some of the cultural collisions through song and, uh, and poetry indigenous to Muslim societies, mm-hmm. as well as this natural intersection with Western and other non-Muslim cultures. Um, I, you know, Deepak Chopra has covered Rumi, uh, uh, Goldie Hawn, Madonna. <laughs> so what is it about Jalaluddin Rumi and his poetry and his life and his legacy that uh, inspires people from so many different uh, traditions and so many different backgrounds? Hmm. Well, this is what we're going to find out. Uh, and we will have uh, two days to actually enjoy as much as possible and continue on and maybe even start maybe more reading groups in the city about it. One of the last things I wanted to ask you was um, the idea of the impact of Sufism in the world and how uh, it's connected to Islam. And sometimes I hear, well, you know, Sufism is not really real Islam. Um, so it's what do, you, what do you have to say to that? Well, simply that... Um Sufism, uh, I come from Pakistan, so my area of the world, South Asia, mm-hmm. uh, which Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, houses over one-third of the world's Muslim population. That's mm-hmm. 500 million Muslims. Mm-hmm. And the majority of those Muslims uh, have uh, the strain of Islam is Sufi Islam. Like the, earlier this year in January, I was at the Jaipur Literary Festival, and just two hours away from there is the, the shrine, the Sufi shrine of Hazrat Moinuddin Chishti, and it, it's in Ajmer. And if you go there every year, mil- hundreds and thousands of Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Christians, Jens, a polyglot population, come to pay tribute to this great Muslim saint. You know, uh, and even the, the, the emperors. The Mughal emperors who ruled India for 500 years, who were Muslim, mm-hmm. they, they said, I mean, the uh, Emperor Akbar, who uh, ruled India for 50 years between 1556 and 1605, he would walk barefoot to the Sufi shrine to pray there, you know? So, 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 so the respect to Sufi Islam in South Asia uh, it, it has been given by the state, by society, yet, Throughout the last thousand years, you've had attacks on the Sufis by the extremists. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, those extremists today could be the Taliban or Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. or, or, or the Wahhabis, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when they go in and they blow up the shrine. Mm-hmm. And when they do those acts, it gets on the media radar. Right. And, you know, all of a sudden you think that, wow, the Sufis are really powerless people because, you know, they're getting blown up. But the fact is that through the last uh, several uh, hundred years, Sufi Islam has gotten stronger and stronger, and the extremists are defeated each time, not by violence. Sufi Islam is about non-violent. Uh, it, it's, the, it's the power of ideas. It's the power of 
belief, it's the power of poetry, the power of music. And, and again, I feel that uh, what's happening in Pakistan and Afghanistan right now will again be defeated uh, by the, the Sufis who live there. Oh, just not there. I think Sufism throughout the world is the way that um, it's, it is becoming stronger and it is becoming a, a more universal and more inclusive message um, that people can actually come to and understand and feel good about and not to have this other thing that's been going on for a while um, and stereotyping basically several cultures. So um, do you have any other uh, words of wisdom for us before you go? <laughs> Well, you know, if somebody said, what is Sufism? I don't know what it is. Uh-huh. You know, there's a line, a Sufi line, which goes like this. Mm-hmm. When you see with the heart, all the masks fall down. Yeah. And, and we're speaking about Rumi. One of his, you know, lines, which touches me a lot always is, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. We will be seeing you at the conference, um, and I just want to. So thank you, and we're going to talk a little bit more about um, Ibn Arabi, and I want to just reiterate something about the conference. Uh, the actual concert is called Celebrating Sufism Through Poetry, Music, and Dance, held Saturday, November 5th at 7.30 p.m. at Columbia University. Please call the Open Center at 212-219-2527, extension 0 or extension 2. Uh, please, students definitely can come with ID for a better uh, price, and um, then we can go from there. Um, just I'm going to describe a little bit about the actual conf- uh, conference concert. This evening uh, we'll have uh, the South Asian leading musical figure, who is Salman Ahmad, and he will be performing the Kowali Sufi devotional uh, singing ballads of the three of South Asia's most influential mystical poets. Aaron Cass, actor-musician uh, who's a Brit, will perform a piece dedica- uh, dedicated to the works of Ibn Arabi. And then we will go, of course, uh, with the great 13th century uh, Persian poet uh, Jaluddin Rumi with his poetry and commentary by Coleman Barks, who will be accompanied by, uh, as you heard today, David Darling. And we will also have an accompanying uh, whirling dervish at this event. So it should be, I think, a spectacular evening, really. Um, So please uh, give a call. This is uh, WBAI 99.5 FM. Now, um, I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit more to Nick here about uh, Ibn Arabi, and I wanted to ask you, Nick, in reference to other events that happen around the world about Ibn Arabi, um, if you could talk a little bit about that and also about Ibn Arabi's located, the society itself is located in Oxford, England. Yes, certainly. There are all kinds of uh, events going on. Um, the, uh, the UK branch of the Ibn Arabi Society, which is based in Oxford, that was the founding branch, is, uh, holds a conference every year in Oxford at mm-hmm. the university there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also events that are sponsored um, in London through the Temenos Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are reading groups, and uh, uh, there have even been uh, courses on Ibn Arabi offered at uh, uh, Oxford University extended education programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a number of different things going on uh, in the UK. The society also gets quite involved in organizing conferences uh, elsewhere, there have been conferences in Azerbaijan um, sponsored by the Ibn Arabi Society with the uh, uh, collaboration of the, uh, of the Azerbaijani government. Mm-hmm. And, um, and speakers from the Ibn Arabi Society uh, do attend many different kinds of conferences all over the world, places like Turkey, Indonesia, etc., etc. Uh, uh, we also uh, uh, get involved uh, with uh, conferences that might be associated with people who were students of Ibn Arabi or commentators on Ibn Arabi. Uh, so, for example, in Turkey, uh, in, in, in next month in October, there's a big conference on Sadruddin Konavi, ah, yeah. who, interestingly enough, was uh, Ibn Arabi's stepson and spiritual heir. And Sadruddin Konavi is uh, one of the links that we do know of between Ibn Arabi and Rumi. Yes. Uh, they were both in Konya in the 13th century, they were contemporaries, 
and we do know that they used to meet and that they used to uh, study together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe there are some upcoming uh, 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 biographies being written on uh, on the life of uh, Sadruddin Carnaby that go into more detail about their relationship. So this should be some very, very interesting and fascinating work to uncover uh, in the coming years. In the coming years. Um, I mean, it's a vast amount of work. I myself was, uh, I went to Kanya, and I was at uh, Saturday's tomb and also at Sham's tomb and, of course, Rumi. I have not gone to where um, Ibn Arabi is buried, which is in Damascus, Syria, is it? And yes, it is. Yeah, and now... There is, uh, there are these trips that sometimes are connected to um, the life of Ibn Arabi. Actually, I think there's one right now, isn't there, in Spain? Actually, there is. Yes. Um, our, I was just uh, communicating with our other co-organizer, Jane Carroll, mm-hmm. who is currently watching the sunset in Ronda. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad for me. <laughs> but, uh, but now this is interesting because she's uh, on a tour, uh, leading a tour with Stephen Hertenstein, another Ibn Arabi scholar and expert. And they are uh, conducting a tour called In the Footsteps of Ibn Arabi. Mm-hmm. And in this tour, they basically uh, follow, the, um, they, they follow a, a route through southern Spain, uh, g- visiting all the places where Ibn Arabi went to, the places that he mentions in his books and in his bi- uh, autobiographical writings. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful trip, and I only did the first leg of it when I was there many years ago, and I kind of regretted not finishing it up, but I had to leave. But, um, I mean, of course, it's southern Spain as well, uh, and I'm sure that Ibn Arabi was in several countries, uh, but in that respect, it was just there in uh, southern Spain that, that we did that. Um, so any parting words, because we're about to uh, finish the show. Well, I, I think we've had some wonderful, wonderful commentary on on the, the vastness of the teachings that, okay. that we've been given through Ibn Arabi okay. and through Rumi. Great. Thank and you so in, much. Yes, thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, seeing everyone at the conference. Yes. So please give us a call at 212-219-2527, extension 2 or 0. So if you want to join us at this conference on November 4 and 5, Ibn Arabi and Rumi, Teachings for the Modern World. It will be held at Columbia University. If you call and you are a listener of WBAI, please use the code WBAI when you call the New York Open Center to get a much better price for this conference. So thank you.